Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Uh, in a breaking from what could only loosely be described as tradition at this point, so early in the podcast, this one is going to be in two parts. So intensivists have embraced the tracheostomy as an intensive care procedure. It's one of the tools that we have in our belt. It's one of the most invasive and certainly one of the riskier procedures that we do. Uh, there is a substantial ANZICS um, document on tracheostomy that forms the structure for this tasty morsel. So in terms of timing, uh, no mortality benefit has been shown in terms of early versus late tracheostomy. And the TRACKMAN trial is a big UK study with an N of 900. Um, it was the trial that really showed there was no great benefit. And it was actually a trial of tracheostomy at four days versus roughly after 11 days or so. In terms of technique, there are a variety available. But to be honest, of the five ICUs I've worked in, they've all used a percutaneous needle followed by a wire followed by a graduated dilator technique. And this seems to work exceptionally well. The minor variations of this I've noted include swapping the endotracheal tube for a laryngeal mask airway and then you bronch down the LMA for positioning as opposed to using an ETT. Um, other options include pulling the ETT just above the cords and hyperinflating the cuff. So you pull it back until the tip of the tube still below the cords but the actual cuff is above it and then you have some downward pressure on a hyperinflated cuff that kind of forms a, a sort of a poor man's laryngeal mask airway. Um, also, things I've observed are varying degrees of blunt dissection before the graduated dilator goes in. Some people do the thing entirely percutaneous with the bits that are in the kit, and some people do a lot of blunt dissection. In terms of indications, um, you're really looking at airway maintenance, so maybe you've got an obstruction there or an inability to protect an airway. Uh, you may have a need for prolonged ventilation, say dependence on a ventilator or a huge secretion burden, or particularly the uh, projected course of the underlying illness, um, e.g. like a, a neurological thing like a Guillain-Barre. Once they develop ventilation, you know that they're going to be on the vent for a while. You may as well get the tracheostomy in early and then you can wake them up again. Um, in terms of contraindications, uh, certainly lack of consent would be a reasonable one. People under the age of 16, uh, anatomical anomalies like a goiter or a mass, certainly a significant bleeding disorder might put you off and certainly infection at the site would be another one to put on a reasonable list if asked. In terms of risks and complications of tracheostomy, there's somewhere between a 4 and a 9% rate of complication, which is mainly minor bleeding and desaturation. But most serious is probably splitting the posterior trachea through the tracheolus muscle, usually when the back wall of trachea is inadvertently wired and dilated through and through. However, bronchoscopy should stop this. Um, pneumothorax, mediastinum, subcut emphysema are all possible, but one of the big common enemies in the day or two after a tracheostomy is bleeding. Small amounts of blood in the airways a clot can often cause significant hypoxia um, requiring some dramatic manoeuvres to try and uh, rescue people from that. In terms of where you want to put the tracheostomy and its placement site, it depends a little bit on technique but the goal is generally between rings 2 and 3 in the trachea or between rings 1 and 2. Uh, the personnel required to do this are the ANZICS guide would suggest a competent intensivist uh, and maybe a trainee who has previously been deemed competent or otherwise under direct supervision. So with regards to bronchoscopy, uh, the ANZIC statement suggests that it should be available but not necessarily used. I find this a somewhat surprising statement as I assumed it was mandatory. But I have worked with someone who never uses it and they seem to get on just fine. Um, so I suppose this is somewhat similar to ultrasound for central lines. Plenty of people seem to cope perfectly well without it. So there are no good data as yet to give a solid recommendation on bronchus and tracheostomy. Um, and unlike in ultrasound, for example, for central lines, where it does seem that ultrasound has become the standard of care in that procedure. 
So what about ultrasound and tracheostomy? It is mentioned by the statement, but there's no recommendation either way. And personally, I remain a little unclear of its place, as I have found vessels that have put me off doing the tracheostomy. But I suspect if we just hadn't looked, everything would have looked fine as we'd, everything would have gone fine as we ploughed on in ignorance. In terms of some useful references and rationalisations and further reading, the ANZIC statement uh, is linked to in the show notes. Life in the Fast Lane has a whole selection of resources worth reviewing along with the range physiology. And there's two papers I've put in the post, the furlough paper on the surgical anatomy of the trachea and the Epstein paper on the anatomy and physiology of tracheostomy are also well worth a read. Thank you again for listening. 